This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello everyone and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn, it's a pleasure as always to have your company. On the weekend came the announcement that Sky News had been suspended from posting any new videos on YouTube for seven days. The reason given was for spreading disinformation about COVID and about unproven therapies, including that old chestnut hydroxychloroquine. Surely an embarrassing situation for what many see as a mainstream news outlet. Now, this comes in the same week that Sky launches a new free-to-air channel for regional areas in New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and South Australia. So it begs the question, if Sky's content is considered too dangerous for YouTube viewers, why is it not so for our more traditional platforms? In this edition, we ask some fundamental questions about the state of the fourth estate in Australia and where Sky News finds itself. Also, should we really be happy with YouTube censoring Australian news companies or are they just simply doing the work that our own media regulators are failing to do themselves? To help us discuss what this action from YouTube means for Sky News and our media in general, we're joined by Ariel Bogle. She works at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute doing research on propaganda. She also worked at the ABC, The Conversation and Slate's Future Tense. Ariel Bogle, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi, thanks for having me. And Bernard Keane also joins us. He's Crikey's political editor. He has also been Crikey's Canberra Press Gallery correspondent and has worked in the public service as well as being a speechwriter. He's also a passionate supporter of greyhounds and adopting older dogs. Bernard Keane, welcome to Fourth Estate. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So Chris Kenny this week said that a multinational company is basically censoring the news and and, and views that Australians can see. Is he right to be worried by YouTube's move? Bernard, you can go first. Chris Kenny would say that. Um, Multinational companies censor news all the time. News Corp censors news all the time. In fact, I was fascinated to see that the Australian, the newspaper that Chris Kenny writes for, didn't actually mention the YouTube uh, ban in um, in its Monday newspaper so one person's censorship is another person's judicious uh, news judgment but as a society we have been pressing big social media platforms and youtube's you know the the oldest and the biggest well certainly the oldest if not the biggest facebook's the biggest but uh, certainly the oldest to in to to put in place much much better and certainly much stricter controls over uh, dangerous content now this has been a you know a vexing issue now for a number of years and the you know governments, other media companies, uh, certainly uh, News Corp, uh, have been complaining about the level of dangerous content that's to be found uh, on the likes of Facebook, on mm-hmm. Twitter, and obviously on, on YouTube as well. YouTube, in fact, possibly the worst offender of all, given 
uh, its tendency to, as, as is alleged by many, although disputed by some, to radicalise people by pushing them further and further down toward even more radical forms of particular content because of the right. way its algorithms work. YouTube taking uh, a position of trying to edit its content so that it is not producing misinformation is something that everyone's been crying out mm -hmm. for for a number of years and for everyone to suddenly turn around and well at least for some people to turn around and say well this is a crushing blow to free speech and mm. multinationals shouldn't be doing this I think is um, uh, certainly hypocritical and also undermines the value of media platforms mm. actually trying to be a bit more responsible about how they handle uh, dangerous content it's an incredibly vexed issue no one uh, I think outside of the, the ranks of, of the Twitterati, mm -hmm. thinks this is an easy issue to solve. It's immensely complicated. Uh, a lot of effort's been put into trying to deal with it. Ariel, what do you think? Is this a measured response to disinformation? I mean, YouTube has been accused of, of giving rise to, to neo-Nazis and, and, and giving a platform to flat earthers, basically. Is this, as Chris Kenny claimed, an example of cancel culture? Or do you think it's a measured response? Well, as Bennett alluded to there, I think there's a real perversity to discussions of free speech in Australia, which maybe we can get into. So first thing, I spent 2020 reporting for the ABC on all kinds of misinformation related to the COVID pandemic, to vaccines, to a whole number of related issues. We asked members of the public to send in what they were seeing online, and they certainly sent us plenty of YouTube clips. And often we would turn to YouTube and ask them, you know, why hasn't this not been taken down yet? And often they would take it down, but it did take us uh, pointing it out to them for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think this latest decision to remove some videos or to block Sky News Australia from publishing videos for seven days as part of its kind of three strikes regime uh, is a really interesting step. Some people would call it justified and we mm -hmm. can discuss the kind of content that Sky has in publishing, but it does show the remaining transparency issues at YouTube. I mean, we don't really know what the decision-making process was here. We don't know why now. It seems like, according to some reporting from The Guardian, some of the videos that Sky has subsequently removed from its YouTube channel were, you know, came out in 2020. So right. why now? And certainly providing a lot of transparency about these kinds of decision-making processes can help people kind of scam the system and create workarounds. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we're really in the dark. Neither Sky nor YouTube has been clear about what exactly the type of videos were that caused this all to happen. So there are remaining issues with um, outsourcing these kinds of decisions about news content to mm -hmm. uh, multinational companies. Uh, I do think it's important that YouTube have a policy like this at mm -hmm. all, but those transparency and accountability issues about its content moderation uh, remain extremely vexed. One rumour that's sort mm. of going around is that uh, rather than being some outrageous infringement on on the rights of Sky News, in fact, the week basically the week-long suspension was an opportunity for Sky News to clear house a bit and remove a lot of the content uh, that uh, even it, even people within News Corp and Sky News itself recognise mm. uh, is problematic. And it's got a week to do that and it's been busily removing a lot of uh, quite problematic content and in a week's time, normal service will be resumed. Normal service, of course, including mm -hmm. 
you know, a very strong commercial relationship between uh, YouTube and News Corp. And it can go forward without uh, a lot of uh, very, very problematic content in relation to um, the pandemic and, and in particular um, treatments for, for COVID-19. So how much credence we give that, I don't know. But So there's um, a rumour that this certainly... is basically a backroom deal almost or a well, and it, well, it, it certainly it has given Sky an opportunity to, to cleanse the... Uh, cleanse the board a bit mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, it's not pushing the sort of content that even other, you know, as we saw with da- the Daily Telegraph uh, dropping Alan Jones's column, even mm-hmm. other sections of News Corp find um, uh, beyond the pale. Mm. Well, Sky News's digital editor, Jack Horton, said in response to YouTube's ban that, you know, you have a right to debate Australia's COVID-19 policies. Does he have a point or is he ignoring the elephant in the room? Ariel? <laughs> well, I mean, I couldn't quite take that column too seriously when mm. he alluded to Auschwitz and Mao. I thought that was uh, perhaps a, a, a bit too colourful for the debate at hand. Right. Uh, you know, of course, like it, of course, there is room for debate about the approach the Australian government at the federal or state level has taken to the COVID outbreak. But that's a far cry from debating, you know, the efficacy of a horse tranquilizer drug. Like mm. that's not the same thing as debating. Um, whether the Australian, the Sydney lockdown um, is working in the right way. Like, I think there's a lot of fuzziness around the edges when we're talking about uh, the kind of content Sky was sharing and what might have caused it to cross the line for YouTube. So YouTube, uh, it's interesting for COVID, has created quite a strict policy and that that's in contrast to mm-hmm. its policies around other types of content, say political misinformation or even misinformation about climate change, which arguably will ultimately be just as harmful, if not more. So YouTube doesn't allow content about COVID that poses a serious risk of egregious harm. And that is definitely content that promotes treatments that have not been proven, misinformation about tests, mm-hmm. misinformation about how the virus is transmitted. So I think that's that's pretty clear cut and much clearer than a lot of its other policies. So I, I do think this argument that we're not allowed to have a debate about what's happening with COVID in Australia is patently false because mm-hmm. there's plenty of contradiction in the media every day on Twitter, on YouTube, on the broadcast channels, on the radio. We can argue about whether that's uh, working or what sort of level of debate that is, but the argument that there's not a debate because of a YouTube decision is um, hardly tenable. Mm. Sky News has been rolling out Craig Kelly repeatedly to its audience as an expert and someone who's not afraid to speak the truth as such. Uh, Chris Kenny, Alan Jones, Chris Smith and Corey Bernardi are among the names to feature Kelly and his takes on vaccines. Now, look, the real problem is he's he's not a medical expert in any meaningful way and is in reality a failed coalition MP and uh, I think a former furniture importer last time I checked. Should Sky News apologise to its audience for misleading them and, and putting their lives at risk? Bernard, to you? Certainly there is, there is a real issue about what impact very sort of broad-based pandemic denialism, if you like, of the kind that certainly Alan Jones has been peddling, but more specific commentary around the efficacy of certain treatments um, has on on individual viewers. I mean, I suspect, uh, given the nature of the audience of Sky News, which tends mm-hmm. to be sort of conservative and older, uh, there's an element of preaching to the converted anyway. Um, but you put your finger on a, on a really, really important issue about the role of experts. Now, if you mm-hmm. if you turn on Sky News during the day, or at least until about four o'clock, when I think Chris Kenny comes on, you'll see journalists on there talking to other journalists, which some people complain about, or talking to politicians. And they're talking about their area of expertise. So what Sky News After Dark, as as everyone calls it, Mm -hmm. consists of 
is a bunch of people who frequently aren't even journalists. Certainly Alan Jones has never been a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, number of, and Peter Credlin's been a political staffer most mm -hmm. of her life. A, a bunch of people who've never been journalists and certainly aren't experts opining about all sorts of issues. A, They're democracy, not talking... a, a democracy should tolerate a wide range of different views and debates. Do, do you think that's... Oh, look, sure. Look, no one's... See, no one's... This is where the free speech angle is, mm -hmm. is a distraction. No one's suggesting they're not entitled to express their views. Mm -hmm. But what Sky News After Dark is peddling is comment. It's not peddling news. It's not peddling information. It's not, uh, you know, however biased that might be. You can get that from Sky News during the day. But After Dark, you get comment and opinion mm -hmm. and purported analysis. And the lack of expertise from the people who are on there undermines the whole argument that, well, you know, we should be entitled to have some sort of debate. Sure, you can have a debate, but it should be informed by facts and it should be undertaken by people who actually know what they're talking about. And the Sky News business model really is the commentary aspect. It's not mm -hmm. about, you know, it's not about the news. It's not about providing information. It's about comment and opinion, mm -hmm. uh, which of course is you know pitched in a certain way. You know, it's designed to be monetized mm -hmm. by in relation to particular audiences. The reason Sky News can do this under the terms of its license, you know, it's a broadcaster. It has a license like mm -hmm. any other broadcaster in the country. There are different kinds of licenses, but they're all licensed. Under the terms of its license, it can provide uh, as much opinion and commentary as it likes. Mm -hmm. And there's no rules around that. There's no restrictions around that. It's only in relation to news and information that it's uh, that it's required to provide things like balance uh, and you know, appropriate fair coverage. When it comes to opinion, it's anything goes, mm -hmm. and that's the driving sort of force behind you know the whole range of, of content that you get from from Sky News After Dark. And it's the lack of expertise mm -hmm. uh, from people who are taken very very seriously as authority figures by a lot of viewers mm -hmm. um, that I think is, uh, you know, has exposed a lot of people to a lot of quite poor advice in, that's going to influence their, their health decisions. Well, the Daily Telegraph has dropped Alan Jones as a columnist and even Fox in the US has all of a sudden really started to warm up to, to vaccines. Is News Corp moving on this issue, do you think? Or, you know, should should we expect to see some change at Sky, do you think? I'd like both of you to answer. Ariel, to you first. Change. Well, it's an interesting question because changing too much would undermine, I think, what its strategy is for YouTube. So separate perhaps from the broadcast uh, channel, from even its digital content, from its other social media uh, accounts, its YouTube strategy certainly seems to be appealing to a US market. So just before uh, we had this conversation, I went and checked what the top videos were on its YouTube channel, the most watched videos. Mm -hmm. and the first one is about coronavirus. It's a special report. Uh, you know, China's deadly coronavirus cover-up, quote-unquote, has more than 8 million views. But the next top videos are all US. You know, they're really indistinguishable from a US broadcaster. They seem to have no particularly Australian angle to them. Right. They are about Trump. Um, Trump becomes the first US president to step into North Korea. That has more than 6 million views. Mm -hmm. uh, a real bugbear of the American right, uh, Biden's uh, cognitive sort of demeanor. Mm -hmm. There's a video titled cognitive, uh, Biden's Cognitive Issues Can No Longer Be Ignored. That has more than 4 million views. Another one with more than 3 million views, Joe Biden has to be taken out of circulation, quote unquote, after rambling about men on the moon, quote unquote. This is the kind of content that are among its top videos. Mm -hmm. And it's a good strategy that seems to be paying off because, of course, Sky News Australia can run ads against that content and make money. 
And it's interesting too, to have a look through the comments. So I can't definitively say that everybody watching that video is from the United States, but certainly the comments seem to suggest that people are receiving it in that way. So mm -hmm. one comment on the Biden's cognitive issues video was, I don't know who this news anchor is, but Australia should be proud. They have some truth and integrity in their media. And another comment, you know, it's a damn shame when I have to watch news from another continent to get news about my own country. So they certainly have found some sort of niche on YouTube, which must be lucrative for them to be pushing it quite so hard. Mm. So I'm not sure the incentives will change here. Uh, and, and so there won't really be a change in editorial policy. Bernard? I, look, News Corp's done a lot of great work on, on vaccinations. It was, a, it was the Sunday Telegraph uh, based in Sydney, which I think led a, led a strong campaign in relation to vaccination about five years ago, which led to... Scott Morrison adopting no jab, no pay, and, and no jab, no play, the, uh, as, the, as those policies are called, which are basically withholding uh, money from people who decline to have their children vaccinated without a, without a good reason. Uh, ironically, mm. i.e. cash incentives for people for, to get vaccinations, uh, which uh, the Prime Minister is currently um, railing against. That they're but not a fan of. From, from no, that, suddenly no. The, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a, bit of a backflip on that issue. Mm. But... Uh, there's no doubting that News Corp, you know, led a very good campaign on that and uh, really went hard against anti-vaxxers. You know, there is a risk of, of you know, portraying the company as a monolith when, of course, it has different outlets mm -hmm. with different business models uh, and different And there are some great journalists that, that work there. And there's some very good, and there are some very yeah. good journalists there. So I, I think to talk about it as as sort of one, you know, big weather vane, is it is it shifting in one particular direction? Is probably it's probably not very helpful, um, but I think at the, at the, institutionally, I mean, the editor of the Telegraph understood that for a paper that had actually played a really strong role in relation to vaccination, running the views of a man who was you know, basically telling people to avoid it like the plague, um, poor pun not intended, was damaging even within the confines of, uh, of, of News Corp's reputation with its readers. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network and our guests are Bernard Keane and Ariel Bogle. Before we look at ACMA and the Press Council's role in all of this, I want to touch on the politics that are very much at the heart of this coverage. The moment COVID struck, it was identified as a health issue, but also a political one for the leaders who had to deal with it. Trump famously said it would disappear. Now, the far right has attacked COVID and, and those who take it seriously from the get-go. They've also pushed cures which have proven to be, at best, ineffective. Hydroxychloroquine features most prominently in the right's attack on COVID-19 measures. Ariel, from a propaganda point of view, why has hydroxychloroquine been a consistent touchstone for the right? Well, it's interesting to trace it back. Uh, I did a piece last year sort of looking at where the obsession with hydroxychloroquine really began because mm -hmm. in the beginning of 2020, there were actually uh, a variety of sort of uh, news articles, scientific papers looking at the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. because, of course, you know, doctors, researchers were throwing everything at the wall to see what would mm -hmm. work here and hydroxychloroquine was one of one of many. It was really after uh, a French researcher who's since become quite controversial, uh, Didier Raoult, he published mm -hmm. a study uh, which has been very much questioned for how it was carried out by other researchers, but it suggested uh, hydroxychloroquine was quite effective, but Trump tweeted it out. And that was mm -hmm. really it. After that, hydroxychloroquine no longer really became a medication of any sort. It became a political symbol, a sort of touchstone. Mm -hmm. And declaring that it might work uh, was became a kind of article of faith in Trump and in the con 
conservative politics of the United States, which we really saw transferred into Australia by figures like Craig Kelly, who posted uh, quite incessantly about hydroxychloroquine in last year, uh, as well as some other drugs. So I think that it's interesting, I mean, as well to look at how these drugs have been interpreted because mm -hmm. a lot of the things that we ask of Australians in combating the pandemic are collective action, you know, mm -hmm. staying home for the benefit of others, getting vaccinated for the benefit of others, wearing masks for the benefit of a complete community. Whereas a, a drug, a quick fix uh, pre presents a sort of like more individualized and are more, yeah, I suppose more individualized at heart uh, approach to a disease like this. And so you might argue there's mm -hmm. some Kind of difference in values there too but it, it's an interesting question i think one that really bears some reflection on a year or two on since it first emerged as uh, a quote-unquote wonder drug that never really uh panned out if you live inside the ecosystem of sky or fox news for that matter i mean the pandemic is not just a, a health issue but part of a much more complicated narrative this narrative has has the great lie that biden stole the election at the heart of it Climate change in the UN are also part of it, as is that lab in China and the, the ever-present threat of so-called progressives wanting to, to make us all live inside a, a totalitarian world, you know, with vaccine passports being the first step on the road to hell, basically. Now, this conspiracy goes on and on and is also ever-changing and, and seems to, to pick up different... Uh, different touchstones along along the way, like a like a great big snowball in in such an ecosystem and a business model, for that matter. Are we expecting too much for facts and experts to rise to the surface when it comes to coverage of COVID nineteen? When so much of what they produce is basically a fantasy, Bernard, to you? Um, yes, using straight facts to combat conspiracy theories is not a particularly effective technique. At the heart of you know the the, the real conspiracy theorists is a willingness to engage in what's called motivated reasoning, which means basically you, you, know, you cherry pick the facts that you want, you reject the facts that you don't want, and you invent the facts that you know, serve your narrative. So confronting conspiracy theorists with you know, clear facts showing that no, in fact, what they believe is not the case, mm -hmm. tends to not be particularly effective. I mean, there were cases of QAnon believers uh, deciding after the inauguration of, of Biden that uh, in fact, they've been, they've been lied to, but that tends to be somewhat unusual conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists. And, and we've, there's been a real, surging conspiracy uh, sort of theorizing in recent years for a number of reasons, partly to do with the internet, partly to do with the kind of um, uh, economic situation that we've had. And a lot of this is tribalism, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, as Ariel said, I mean, the, the, the elevation of hydroxychloroquine is, is, a, is an example of a, you know, a sort of a totemic figure or, or symbol that people can believe in. It fits a conservative narrative. I mean, it's a parallel to the idea that we're just Technology will come along and fix climate change for us. We don't have to actually engage in collective action. We'll just mm -hmm. invent something that will fix climate change. Well, you know, in here we had the perfect invention to fix COVID-19. That sort of technological determinism, uh, I think, plays sort of much better to uh, conservatives with a with a worldview of disliking any sort of collective action. If I can make a small assumption here, I, I'd say that, that both of you think that propaganda and disinformation doesn't really have a place in our news media. How do we make that more of a reality? In the case of ACMA, it's received 23 complaints about Sky's vaccine coverage and it's, it's ended up just being sent on to Sky News for review and comment. Is that good enough? Ariel, to you? Well, it's, it's a very fraught question, I think, about whether ACMA and the tools and resources it has at the moment suit the sort of digital age we're mm -hmm. in. Certainly, they have a lot of 
they have something to say about television broadcast, mm-hmm. but li- less, I suppose, to say about what happens on Sky's uh, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, they did launch the Australian Code of Practice uh, on disinformation and misinformation alongside mm-hmm. the platforms. And there, there's still a debate continuing about the adequacy of that code. Mm-hmm. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. It seems like ACMA and some and Sky and a whole bunch of others will be asked uh, to speak before the Media Diversity Committee right. even later this week. So I think that it, it is time, I think, to ask whether ACMA has the right type of powers, whether it's the right regulatory body to deal with the kind of online disinformation we're seeing spring up via uh, media outlets, YouTube channels or mm-hmm. Twitter content, Facebook content as well. It's also really interesting that this ban from YouTube has come at the same time in the same week, basically, that Sky News Regional has launched uh, within, uh, so it's basically, it's a free-to-air channel for New South Wales, uh, Victoria, Queensland and South Australia in their regional areas. Why is YouTube able to step in yet, you know, and they've decided some of the content is, is, is dangerous that Sky are putting out on their platform, but why is that good enough for, for it to be broadcast out on television, basically? To you, Bernard? There's an irony in all this, which is that YouTube is doing regulatory work that ACMA mm-hmm. so far has declined. To do, despite mm-hmm. the fact that when you're online, you the rules in relation to online content are far less strict than mm-hmm. in relation to broadcasting. Broadcasting, as I said earlier, you're licensed. Mm-hmm. You have certain license requirements. Uh, subscription television has uh, significantly less onerous requirements uh, than free-to-air broadcasting, uh, but mm-hmm. that, of course, doesn't apply once uh, you start taking a subscription TV feed and, and putting it on uh, regional broadcasting. That's subject to terrestrial free-to-air broadcasting licences. The powers of ACMA, or before at the ABA, I mean, that's been a vexed issue for oh, ever since I can remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was involved in overhauling the powers of, of, of ACMA mm-hmm. um, then to try and address some of the concerns about the perceived lack of powers that ACMA had, the, its unwillingness to use powers, basically the fact that you got flogged with a wet lettuce if you stepped out mm-hmm. of line, if you were broadcasting. Mm-hmm. That was the widespread perception and I think there was some justice to that. And um, and what about the press council? I mean they routinely take over 12 months to pass adjudication and then its rulings at best again amount to just a slap on the wrist. Do you think there's a better way oh, for them th- as well? I think the press council is uh, a dead letter and, and best uh, ignored. It really doesn't have uh, you know it's 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 token at best and that's mm-hmm. it's been pretty generous. There's a fundamental difference though between broadcasters and Newspapers. I mean, broadcasters, as I said, they're, they're, they're licensed. Mm-hmm. They're using public spectrum uh, and therefore there's a requirement uh, long accepted that they are subject to special rules that govern the kind of content that they're allowed to put out. Newspapers, well, look, anyone can anyone can produce a newspaper. You don't need, you're not licensed to produce a newspaper. You can go mm-hmm. and churn out a newspaper, you know, wherever you like and whenever you like. So the, the restrictions around that are much less significant and that's exactly how it should be. The, the idea of a proper regulatory model for for newspapers is another one that's been around for a long time. Stephen mm-hmm. Conroy tried to to fix it uh, about a decade ago by proposing that it be a basically a requirement that newspapers themselves put together some sort of credible body, to, you know, to vet their content. And they rebelled against that and declared it was an outrageous attack on free speech and, and freedom of the press, uh, right. which it was anything but. Nonetheless, it's true that in terms of subscription TV and in terms of newspapers, you know, there is even less of an onerous regulatory requirement than there is 
for uh, for free-to-air broadcasters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it is significant that YouTube's done the sort of regulation that ACMA really hasn't been in a position to do. I mean, you said that the, it afforded the complaints to Sky News. Well, that's what it's required to do. I mean, you mm -hmm. can't, as a regulator, you can't just make a decision about someone else's complaint. You've got to give the person complained against the opportunity to actually deal with the complaint. As soon as you start trying to extend ACMA's powers, they start talking about things like natural justice and, you know, they're pretty well embedded in, you know, the way we regulate. If we put the lack of diversity in media ownership in Australia to one side for a moment, do you think there is, do you think, is the problem that the fourth estate, you know, it really shouldn't be controlled by the government for obvious reasons, but self-regulation is a failure as well because basically you're putting the kids in charge of the biscuit tin. You know, is self-regulation ever a good idea to you, Ariel? Self-regulation is an interesting question. I mean, I'm much more uh, on top of how the social platforms mm -hmm. are regulated. And I pointed to earlier that Australian code of practice on disinformation and misinformation. That's another sort of form of self-regulation. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look at, too, when we're talking about these incentives and how our media is structured, the way that these platforms operate and the kind of content they encourage. I mean, there is an argument here that the way YouTube works, the way it recommends mm -hmm. videos, the way it has, I suppose, made favourites of news outlets on its platform, recommending them over other types of content, the way it offers a partner program to news outlets like Sky in terms of allowing them to earn revenue. Mm -hmm. And of course, the recent deal News Corp has made with Google directly to uh, help pay for some of its journalism. Mm -hmm. These are all incentive structures that might encourage arguably the type of content Sky News Australia has been posting to its YouTube channel. I mean, you could argue too that it's broadcast uh, television, sort of terrestrial television component is just a feeder for YouTube rather than the other way around. So mm. yep. there's a lot of uh, questions here, I think, that we need to look a bit more broadly than just media diversity here in Australia, but also how our media outlets interact with the platforms where they now make money and where they are often finding the most eyeball. Right. Bernard, to you? Look, self-regulation is never a good idea, no. Mm -hmm. uh, not when uh, money is involved, because it'll always be a, money will always outweigh the incentive to self-regulate. And we've seen that for a long, long time in broadcasting. I mean, broadcasting is, has what's officially called a co-regulatory model, right. but it's much closer to self-regulation than to um, uh, effective uh, regulation. But I do think, I mean, Ariel made, you know, correctly made the point about... Um, in a way, the, the the television content that Sky produces is a feeder for its for its online service. Mm -hmm. The business models that our broadcasters and our media companies are moving to are quite different to the old analog era ones. And we're still stuck with the Broadcasting Services Act, despite being updated routinely mm -hmm. in the last 20 years, is still very much an analog-based approach. I mean, it's still based on things like um, radio license areas, for example, which is a you know a quite bizarre approach to regulation, but it's the foundation for our whole media media ownership mm -hmm. structure so right. there's no doubt that that not just it's not just about the changes in technology and there's always been this idea oh if only we could make the broadcasting services act technology neutral and, and some ministers have even boasted that they've done that it's more about the business model than about the technology itself and the business model i think are, are, uh, have evolved rapidly compared to a you know very plodding and old regulatory structure but the, the the vexing problem in all this is that Governments are slow to move. They'll conduct mm -hmm. reviews. Bureaucrats will do reviews. Um, inquiries will be held. And by the time you know they, they actually get legislation into parliament to address a particular issue, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a suite of new issues mm. have emerged. So it's um, it's all very it's, glacial. It's you know, it's tortoise and hare stuff, yeah. and yeah. It, you know that that complicates the fact that these are not mm. easy issues 
to deal with. How do you deal with a hybrid online broadcasting entity? Now, the Broadcasting Services Act really isn't structured to deal with that. And it's, you know, in, in, in some ways, that creation is meaningless in a regulatory sense because it doesn't fit neatly mm. into those sort of categories, particularly around trying to determine what kind of requirements do you impose on its content, if any. Over the years here on Fourth Estate, one of the solutions that's been mentioned again and again to the problems that we're, we're regularly seeing in the media in this country is that we need more diversity within our media. Now, America has a much more diverse media than ours, but it has the same problems of, of disinformation and propaganda. In fact, I, th- I think you could probably argue it's, it's far, far worse than ours. Do you think that greater media diversity would solve the problem we have when we're discussing outfits like Sky or outfits like News Corp. Ariel, to you first. I think it would be interesting to see what a more diverse landscape in Australia would do in this on this topic. I mean, mm-hmm. we have, of course, had a wider range of newspapers, a wider range of radio stations, et cetera, in the past, uh, but it's not quite a good comparison because the internet, of course, was not uh, at such a sort of high level of penetration mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, certainly there are little startups. Um, we might say that a lot of individuals, a lot of uh, so-called social media influencers are playing a role in this media space mm-hmm. and perhaps we should start including them in the discussion of our information and news ecosystem. But what we've seen there too is the issue of accountability. What happens when you do spread misinformation about COVID, whether it be deliberately or not, how do we enforce a sort of regime of correction of accountability onto this diversity of people that are speaking out and loudly? Because we can't just look at the at sort of figures like Trump, of course, as mm-hmm. part of the problem. We can't just look at Facebook or YouTube. We also have to look at the role of media in the disinformation sort of cycle. We also need to look at the role of influential people who basically act as their own broadcasters at this point. I mean, I would count a lot of Australian footballers as sort of mini media empires <laughs> based on the type of uh, and size of the audience they have on platforms like Instagram, YouTube, or even like TikTok. So mm-hmm. there is a growing diversity, but perhaps it's not in a way that we're entirely comfortable with. Bernard, to you? I think diversity can be overstated, funnily enough. Um, diversity okay. of uh, outlets is not necessarily going to give you diversity of uh, information. Um, you can have a lot of uh, you know, very left-wing outlets, a lot of, mm-hmm. of very right-wing outlets. So diversity per se is not necessarily a good policy goal. I think what we've seen overseas, certainly evidence from Europe, suggests that uh, countries with with Strong public broadcasters tend to fare better in the war against misinformation uh, than others. That's not necessarily the case. Look at the UK with you know, very the, the world's strongest public broadcaster. Mm. That's not necessarily the case, but it does tend to be the case that strong, respected, independent public broadcasters tend to be a good bulwark against uh, misinformation, if not, you know, certainly if not the cure. In Australia in recent years, of course, the coalition's been attacking the ABC, you know, defunding mm-hmm. it. Uh, trying to attack its uh, attack its credibility, and in the same token, they're also handing out more money to to News Corp. A, a oh, indeed, um, and you know, and, and of course, the attacks on the ABC are at the behest uh, of News Corp. Mm-hmm. But having said that, the government has also, and this was part of the twenty sixteen uh, media ownership changes, it has started committing significant amounts of money to small and, and regional mm-hmm. uh, publishers and and media outlets to support greater diversity at that kind of level. And, and look, you know, full disclosure, Crikey and private media that, that owns Crikey is one of the beneficiaries of that. And I think that's that's been a successful way of supporting media diversity, even if at the same time the government's trying to, to undermine 
uh, public broadcasting. I think you need both. Mm-hmm. Media diversity is good, but what we do need is very strong media companies, well-resourced, large media companies. And I say that because if you want people to properly hold the powerful to account, whether it's you know, government, whether it's corporations, mm-hmm. whether it's a powerful private individuals, you need well-resourced, deep-pocketed media companies that can undertake and resist uh, litigation mm-hmm. by uh, the powerful smaller medium companies for all that you know yay us we're, we're plucky and uh, and so on we don't have the kind of deep pockets that we need for uh, you know a genuine holding of the powerful to account and uh, uh, that kind of mix I think is important rather than diversity per se well on that note I'd like to thank both Ariel Bogle and Bernard Keane for being on fourth estate thank you pleasure and thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Many thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Mm-hmm.